discuss living better through permaculture, mindfulness, decentralization, freedom, flow, agorism, anarchy, and more. We'll discuss how to solve life's complex problems with simple solutions. This is Mike the Polymath coming from the Easy Peasy Workshop in Indianapolis, Indiana, the crossroads of America. Thanks for joining. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to episode 121 of the Easy Peasy Podcast. I've got to admit, I think this episode might just blow your mind. Putting it together... Halfway blew mine, even though this was all content which I am already familiar with. Simply synthesizing it together into a certain order seemed to put this content into context in a way not done before. I'm not sure what I'm going to call this episode. I have a few different options to choose from, but one of them would be, have we forgotten more than we'll ever know? That's the basic question. Because from what I've gathered, from what I've heard, there's a really, really good chance that humans, proto-humans, prehistoric people may have had technology that we haven't even scratched the surface of. I'm starting to think that we're not as smart as we think. You know, I I often hear things said, assumptions made that feel incorrect. Things commonly thought about our ancestors. 
which I think are not only false, but blatantly insulting. And I don't know much, but I'm pretty sure it's not a good idea to insult your ancestors. Right? You know, I hear people say things like they were stupid. We're so much smarter than they were. Those dumb hunter-gatherers didn't know shit. And I don't buy that. I don't. I don't buy it because I've done a little hunting and I've done a little gathering and I know that you know, while you don't have to be a rocket scientist, you don't you don't survive in the natural world being stupid. I don't believe our ancestors were stupid. And you know what else I don't believe? I don't believe that they died young. Everybody says you know, oh, they only lived to be 35. If that. First of all, you weren't there. Whatever fucking studies were done about, you know, lifespan. I think the only good data we've got is from the last couple hundred years. Right? To claim that our hunter-gatherer ancestors. Now, that by itself is a misconception to call them hunter-gatherer ancestors. Some of them were, but many of them weren't. Some of them lived in societies, in civilizations that we know absolutely nil about. And we like to think that we have extended our lifespan so, so much. But the truth is, lots of people lived to old age back in the day. There was more infant mortality and there was perhaps more death via Physical trauma, falling off a cliff, getting stampeded, you know, getting bucked off the back of a horse. There's a chance that the average age span, the lifespan, was shorter by a significant margin, but it doesn't mean people didn't live healthy lives into their 80s, 90s, and perhaps even hundreds. This is one of the misconceptions, probably more based in medieval lore than in prehistoric fact, right? In the medieval times, people died young because they lived in squalor and filth 
and they were servants and slaves to their feudal lords. And if that doesn't short a lifespan, I don't know what does. But I don't buy this bullshit argument about them only living to 30, 35, 40 if they're lucky bullshit. People in their natural habitat who made it through the relative vulnerability of of childhood more often than not I assume made it through adulthood and into their old age and probably were stronger healthier and happier than most of us you know another misconception somewhat related is that we're just so much better in every way than they were 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 years ago. We know more, therefore we are better. You know, I would argue that just because we know more in a certain sense doesn't mean we're any smarter and it doesn't mean they didn't know more about other things. The other misconception is that they worked their tails off constantly, sun up to sundown, day and night, 365 days of the year. This I know to be false. I witnessed works of art in the rock that took time and it wouldn't it wouldn't be done unless they had the time to do it I believe our ancestors worked really hard for certain months certain seasons certain years and I believe they prepared for the off season for the cold times. And I believe we should listen to their their lessons. These myths, these tales, these stories. Whether or not we bu- you know buy it. Whether we believe it fully, we can take a lesson or two here and there. Because if we don't, we may suffer the consequences. Now, I do tend to believe that there may have been ancient civilizations that we know next to nothing about. And I also believe they might have possessed certain abilities and technologies that we have not even conceived of. So, I won't jabber on anymore. I will play you this this series of clips here. And my hope is that while you don't need to believe any of it, 
some of it might make you think. Think about whatever misconceptions you may have had about the past and the future. I think every one of the people that speaks in these clips has their own misconceptions. But at the same time, I think they each have something to contribute to the to the greater truth. So here you go. Once you understand that the medical system is lying to you, this is pre-COVID, I learned this. You mm-hmm. kind of go, oh shit, well, everything else is a lie too, downstream from that. Um, and, and so for me, that was kind of my, my entry into the realizations of clown world. Um, being First Nations, having the perspective also, I've always kind of, you know, had my my doubts about colonization and, and sort of the state. Um, that's kind of how I became an anarchist, was from the indigenous perspective of co- colonialization. Um, and, and I'm under the opinion that all people are indigenous. Uh, it's not a race thing. It's just that the natural state of humans is indigenous. And and then we have this this parasite, this organism called the state that emerges, and it, and it changes the natural state of human beings, which is consent, to um, now co- coercion, right? Like it's being forced upon us. We have to to comply and submit. Um, and it's, it always settles on violence, right? Of course. So that's kind of why I'm an anarchist. I believe that the natural state of humans is, is peace and, and consent, um, and that's been distorted out of out by the state because again just looking into the history of, of tribal peoples um we never there's there's no ruler there's no there's no rule ruler inside of a tribe there's rules but there's no ruler um no person holds intrinsic authority it's always respect it's merit-based um no position holds anything arbitrarily and so <clears throat> without bureaucracy without that legislative parasite um you don't see the same problems within a tribe that you do amongst the the domesticated human um and 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 i think that a lot of our problems as a society can be traced back to the disproportionate um value placements that we have right like the value in society is completely distorted because it's issued not discovered from the top down so i mean that's kind of my background I'm, i'm just i'm a I'm a plop. I have no credentials or anything like that. Um, I just, I just, uh, I'm a skeptic. I'm a clown world skeptic above all. <laughs> you know, there's, there's people that have been listening to the show for almost as long as it's been on 14 and a half years now. And when you just gave that intro, they're like, Oh, I see why Jack brought this guy on because it's, uh, it's like listening to myself phrase what I say all the time, a little bit differently. I, I agree with you that we're all indigenous. And I also use the term native, and I, I don't use that maybe in the way that people do politically. I use it in the way that I would describe a biological system that if I catch a trout out of a stream and I decide to keep that trout and I fillet that trout, it has bright orange fillets and it's kind of a smaller fish than the state would stock or something like that. I'm like, that trout's native. It was born here. It was born in this ecosystem. And I think it's incredibly important because if we're going to fix all the stuff that we have screwed up as a species, and I agree with you mostly due to the state, then we have to not see ourselves as separate and apart from the wilderness or from nature. Like we have this idea in our society today that like, well, the wilderness is over there 
Nature's over there, and we're over here in the city or the town, and we are somehow not part of this thing. It's neocolonialism. That's what it is. Correct. Correct. I always say I'm as native as a deer. I'm as native as a snake. I'm as native as a rat. I'm as native as a fish. I'm as native as any other biological organism on this planet. The difference is we have, within our cognitive ability, the ability to think forward and see what we're doing for personal gain, or to improve things or to damage things. And I think that comes with a responsibility to like stop thinking about what I can get this week, this month, this quarter, and start thinking about what the hell we're leaving behind for our great grandchildren. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like the history like the legacy we're gonna leave behind, right? And this is a this is an indigenous principle, thinking in seven generations. Um, this is something that, you know, we used to do before colonialization, like Everything that was discussed, everything that was done was under the understanding that, you know, every action we take has a consequence, not for us, but for our children's children's children. Um, and we knew that intrinsically as a culture for forever. That's, sorry, Cliff, that's true of the past in, in looking for a civilization of the past. Uh, in, in terms of the human past, there, there, there are two issues. Firstly, actually many more than two issues, but let's name two of them. Firstly, we, we, cannot know that a civilization of the past would be exactly like ours or would go down the same technological route uh, as, as, as ours would do. Uh, and secondly, the geological processes on planet Earth have a way of wiping things clean relatively quickly. I mean, just because I mean, I'm living in, you know, in England, it's an old country. Uh, but but frankly speaking, we have hardly anything left even from the Tudor period, you know, which is which is um, 500 years ago or less. 400, 400 years ago, we've hardly anything left from that period, uh, never mind from periods in the much more distant past, the much more remote past, when we're left with just sort of scraps and tiny pieces on which to draw our assumptions. And the same goes for, for interstellar space, those vast distances and those vast time spans involved. Anything we're, we're seeing, you know, that's, that's, that's a thousand light years away, it's taken a thousand years for that light to reach us. So, you know, it, 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 it's an enormously complicated problem, but it starts with the assumption of what we're looking for. And all I want to say is we should not assume that what we're going to find is going to be us. We're going to find something very different, which may do things in a very different way, so different that it will completely blow our minds and we couldn't even get to grips with its technology. We couldn't even recognize it as a technology. The, the, the Atlantis structure. And so let's just get into it. Let's do it. So the Rishot structure, I was on your show a little over a year ago and sh shared some details about it. To people who aren't aware, there's a location in the Western Sahara Desert of Mauritania called the Rishot structure. It's also commonly referred to as the Eye of the Sahara. It is a site that most people have never seen or heard of before, which is truly peculiar because it's so spectacular. It's a site that uh, astronauts typically use to reference from space. It is a geological feature that is said to be volcanic in nature. And what's so spectacular about this is that it just so happens to match more than a dozen striking similarities to what Plato had described as the lost ancient capital city of Atlantis. That's my thinking as well, is that uh, for all we know, these pre-Diluvian people develop uh, unique science and physics. Uh, I mean, that were able to probably use looks like Earth energies you write a great deal about places like Baalbek, Egypt, and Peru, uh, these yeah. megalithic stones. Uh, I mean, what are the signatures other than the cut marks 
that would take us to a science that we're not familiar with? What would be, for you, beyond just the basics of the stone monuments, would you say well, is... Well, almost by definition, a, a science that we're not familiar with would, would not... <laughs> we would not have any markers for it, for, for, for what it might be. I mean, let's, let's, say that, let's say that our lost civilization or our aliens thousands of light years away are mm-hmm. masters of telepathy and telekinesis. Uh, how are we going to find the physical evidence for that, uh, either in the past or in distant interstellar space? Um, it's a it's a it's a very difficult it's a very challenging problem to 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 find that physical evidence. So when I look at the when I look at the past, uh, I am not uh, in a desperate search for technology like ours. What I am in a search for is knowledge. Do I find evidence from the past of a level of knowledge possessed by some human beings? which was far in advance of the knowledge that our historians and archaeologists tell us was available at that time. That's what I regard as a, 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 an anomaly or a puzzle uh, which, which requires further investigation. Um, now in today's world, it's, it's trust the experts, right? It's delegate everything out. It's, there's never any personal responsibility. It just everything gets delegated out. And that's how you are. You have massive corruption. Like the corruption is enabled. It, it's kind of like incentivized. It, it, everyone kind of knows. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. You intrinsically know there's deep, deep corruption that sort of runs the show. And and you better just keep your head down and, and not participate. And if you do participate, well, I guess it's because you want to you want to climb the ladder, right? Even in the corporate world, it's it's corruption that in, incentivizes the the hierarchy. To add a little interest to our site, you know, we do have excavators. We do dig around. We'd have mining gravel operations and stuff like that. But in the boneyard, we use the excavators primarily to keep the drains open. And we were digging one day, and we found burnt bedrock. And Mm. you've probably seen a picture of that. Yeah. But the uh, bedrock is actually burned. I mean, you can tell it's burned. It's rub it. It's got charcoal. I mean, it's like... And then the gravels right above it are burned. Now, to go along with that theory, we had sea levels that rose three to 400 feet in a relatively short period of time. And Beringia, which was that land bridge that came across, suddenly it was no longer a land bridge. It was underwater. Worldwide, sea levels rose three to 400 feet around the globe. Yeah, quickly. Real quick. And might have been quicker than... The megafauna could adopt too. Megafauna mm. had to have. They had to have the right ecosystem to live in, and it changed too quick, and they couldn't adopt. That's my theory. Adapt, adapt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that that's probably part of it too, right? Because some of the things probably survived. They think a lot of things died on the impacts, or during the floods, and during. If you found charcoal. I mean, they found um, this stuff that they call nuclear glass. It's called the trinitite, I believe is the way they, the, the way they pronounce it. But it's the same sort of uh, material they found during the Trinity explosion, which is like from the immense impact of the explosion, it turns sand and, and you know, particles into glass. And they, found, they find that all around the world at that same, when they do core samples at that same time period. And so 
if there's impacts like that, there's most likely fires. Mm -hmm. And so there's probably, that's probably what you're looking at. Could, it could, it could, could be, yeah. or it could be some other sort of mass fire that hit that area. But it's under 60 feet of silt, mm. 10 to 15 feet of gravel. And <clears throat> we're up where this is located is the whitest pay streak in, in the interior. It's about a mile wide, this pay streak, where the gold is. <clears throat> the mountains used to be, you know, a couple few thousand feet taller than they are right now, where the pay was coming out of the host rock. And gold's got a specific gravity of 19, meaning it'll displace itself 19 times in water. <clears throat> so that's how sluice boxes work. Mm. You Gold pans. You mix the dirt mm -hmm. with the water, the gold goes right to the bottom. Same way with the, the pay streak. The gold's moving down the creek. It goes deeper and deeper and deeper. The gravel goes over the top of it. Pretty soon it hits bedrock. You can't go any deeper. And that's where it stays. And the gravel just keeps moving down. So there was a lot of water that went through this valley. This creek there now is not 15 feet wide. But the valley itself with the pay gravels is a mile wide. Wow. And there's gold throughout the whole thing. So at one point in time, there could have been a river that's a mile wide that was running through there. Could have been. I don't know. And these animals that they said that aren't supposed to be there, mm -hmm. what, what animals are those? Dire wolves being one of them. Dire wolves? You found dire wolves? Dire wolves. Do you have photos of this stuff? Uh, Is yeah. it all up on your Instagram? Yeah. Well. Jamie's I, looking. Yeah, there might be some on that, uh, on my page. So when you found dire wolves, like in what condition? Just the bones? Because yeah. you found some tissue too, which is cr kind of crazy. Yeah. Like a lot of these animals died and you found little pieces of soft tissue and tendons and ligaments, which those paleontologists were thrilled by. Like they couldn't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. They had uh, bones with marrow still in them. Wow. And um, there's the carnivores had pretty strong jaws. They liked the marrow. That might explain why so many bones are broken, where they're broken. Mm -hmm. You know, they chewed into these animals. And uh, one of the other extinct, not just dead, but extinct animals we found up there is, uh, we've never found elk before. Well, we, we found some elk, but the experts say they didn't exist up there. And I know you're, you'd like to hunt elk and yeah. eat elk. We're just, our, we're not in our biological environment we're not in our native environment everything has been uh, it's synthesized now so because there's this biological imperative that's no longer being met um, we see all this dysfunction everywhere in society on interpersonal levels right like you see like the chronic um, abuse like like abuse amongst families like domestic abuse things like that chronic addiction addiction is a big problem right now um, in any community anywhere um, especially now with high-level synthetic opiates and things like that, it's it's a it's a it's the real pandemic. But that <clears throat> that is all a symptom. It's not a cause. The cause is truly just our our value placement is wrong, and, and we trust authority. We don't actually have any merit in our leaders. Our leaders are all um, scammers and fraudsters, essentially. To become a good politician, you have to be a good a good scammer. Uh, all of these things raise raise questions in my mind. I don't I don't impose a, a notion of what 
uh, a lost civilization might have been. I don't want to do that. I want to let the evidence speak to me. And the evidence says to me, there is a big hole in our understanding of the past. There are too many anomalies to be dismissed as, as mere coincidence. Uh, we're looking at the legacy of knowledge and wisdom that's been passed down over a very long period of time. Yeah, you're referring to the Perry Reese map, which is the one I know well, about. From yeah, that's just one of a category of maps. Yeah. Perry, Reese, Perry Reese map is extremely, uh, it's extremely interesting, drawn by a Turkish admiral in 1513. We're fortunate that his own ha he made handwritten notes on the map. Mm -hmm. Not not all of the map has survived. Actually, only a, a fragment of it has survived. It was originally a world map. But the fragment that survives shows the west coast of Africa and the east coast of the uh, Americas. And this map was drawn in 1513. Uh, and that uh, was just 21 years uh, after Columbus famously sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and the map... The map is uh, the map has a number of anomalous features. One is it um, it arguably shows the Antarctic coastline down at the tip of South America, and another is that it shows the Bimini Road uh, on a huge island in the place where the island of Bimini now now sits. Uh, and the, the last time that structure was was above water, it's now 20 feet underwater. The last time it was above water was more than 7,000 years ago, and it was above water for thousands of years. Before that, so you know, P Perry Reese, the Antarctica aspect of Perry Reese swings into focus when we realize that there are dozens of other maps from that period which also show Antarctica, uh, and yet you can go to maps created with the best technology in the early 19th century, such as the Pinkerton World Map, and you'll find only a hole where Antarctica is. There's no land mass shown there at all because we didn't discover it until 1820. And those mm -hmm. were honest cartographers. And yet there it is on much older maps, copied from even older source maps, in the right place, of the right six scale and size, many details correct. It's a very it's a very puzzling thing. And I think these puzzles, I think I think research should be anomaly driven. We should be we should be driven by things that aren't explained by the current theory. One of the problems I have with archaeology is that they want to make everything fit into the current theory. Right. Here's the current theory. We want to make everything fit with it. If it doesn't fit, we might actually not even speak about it. You know, this is how archaeology unfortunately works, that they, they'll dismiss whole topics the way the, the way the notion of Clovis first in the peopling of the Americas, that the Clovis culture was the first culture, the way that that had a stranglehold on American archaeology for decades uh, even though there was masses of evidence which showed that Clovis was definitely not first. Um, I, I think that rather than trying to force uh, puzzling and difficult evidence to fit into the straitjacket of existing theory, we should be willing to reconsider existing theory uh, much more than, than we are at present. It's spectacular. So just to run down real quick, Plato had described Atlantis as being the capital. Let me just mention that because it was an empire said to be made up of 10 kingdoms. And what I'm focusing on is the lost capital city, which was said to be made up of concentric circles, three of water, two of land, which matches the Rishot structure. It also was said to have an opening to the sea at the south. And if you look at it from satellite imagery, you can clearly see that water had ran through it. Let's take a look at that. Put, tell Jamie what image to pull up so we and, can... Um, and furthermore, it was said to have mountains to the north, and you just so happen to have mountains called the Atlas Mountain Chain, which Atlas was said to be the very first king of Atlantis. And what's interesting is that the very first known king of Mauritania, which is where the Rishat structure is located, 
is also their very first known king was also named Atlas. And though I'm not saying that that's the same individual, but what we do today is we pass down names, right? Like people are like, oh, my dad's name's John, and so is so is my son. And so it's it's another striking similarity, but it goes further than that. Like there's geological similarities, such as the fact that Atlantis was said to be made up of red, black, and white color stone, which is another similarity you see at the Rishat structure. Um, it was said to have an abundance of gold and that the outer walls were lined with it. And it turns out that Mauritania is loaded with gold. And not only that, the richest person ever known to exist in all of mankind is Mansa Musa of the Mali Empire, which consisted partly of modern-day Mauritania. And he was so rich from gold that he would be richer than Elon Musk and, like, Bezos combined almost. Like, many uh, unfathomable amount of billions of, of dollars. So that's another similarity. What year was this? Oh, this is... Uh, 1300s or 1400s? There he is. Yeah, there we are. 1312, 1337. What a great name, too. Mansa yeah. Musa. <laughs> um, but the similarities don't end there. There was said to be an abundance of elephants, which is one reason why to suggest that Atlantis would have been in Africa is because, well, besides the fact that elephants are known to be in, throughout Africa, they used to be in Mauritania. They're unfortunately pretty much extinct there today. Um, but another little detail that most people aren't aware of because they think of Atlantis like, oh, it must be at the bottom of the ocean. Well, that's not exactly how Plato worded it. He did describe that the aftermath of Atlantis followed a catastrophic event involving water, is that, is that what was left of Atlantis was reeds of grass and a shoal of mud that prevented ships from navigating to and from. And what people don't realize is that Sahara Africa, up until about 4,500 to 5,000 years ago, was totally green. It was tropical. It had the largest network, or one of the largest networks of rivers ever known to exist. It had the largest freshwater lake ever known to exist, which is Mega Lake Chad, which just to put this into perspective, it is, if you take all the North American Great Lakes combined, that's 94,000 square miles of surface area, whereas Mega Lake Chad was 139,000. Whoa. Massive. Um, the, additionally, uh, Atlantis, the capital, was said to have a river that went just north of it or next to it. And the Taman Rasat River went right through the Rishat structure or just north of it, went all the way to the Atlas Mountains that I described, which is in modern-day Morocco. Um, and the evidence is that it existed at that same period of time when Atlantis was said to be around 11,600 years ago prior to its destruction up until about 5,000 years ago. So going back to my point, like a lot of people see the Sahara Desert and they don't realize that this place was unbelievably different than it is today. And one of the things that's so important is that I know some people listening will, you know, they hear Atlantis, they think, oh, it didn't exist. Right. Whether it existed or not, the the evidence that we're going to chat about today to show you that there is conclusive evidence, I would say, that catastrophic water erosion, that the ocean had blasted through the Sahara tens of millions of years more recently than previously known. Let's say 400 feet. The, the, the sea level rise at the end of the ice age was 400 feet. And what are we missing? We're missing 10 million square miles of the Earth's surface. That was above lot. water during the ice age, and that's underwater now. And to put that in perspective, that's roughly Europe and China added together. So it's like telling the story of the world but ignoring Europe and China. That's what archaeology is doing by ignoring the continental shelves. Yes, there's some marine archaeology. Yes, they go diving and look at shipwrecks. But by and large, they're not interested in diving to see if if the whole picture of our past needs to be revised, uh, as I strongly believe it does. And if, if archaeologists would listen more to what local divers and local fishermen have to say, they would realize that there are anomalous structures all over the world on these continental shelves. 
what was some of the dates for uh, some of the artifacts pulled out of Dwarka? Weren't they in the thousands of, uh, or at least 500 BC, something very, very yeah, remote? That, 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 that's, that's right. I mean, Dwarka is a relatively shallow dive. I don't remember needing to get deeper than about 25 or 30 feet at Dwarka, um, mm-hmm. whereas at Yonaguni, you're down, you're down in the 120-foot range. Um, uh, it's a relatively shallow dive. Uh, some of the submergence may be accounted for by land subsidence rather than by sea level rise. Um, I think that more work needs to be done further out from the shore than has been done at the moment. I think that Dwarka needs to be seen in context of the Indus-Bali civilization, uh, Harappa and Mohenjo-Daro and the mysterious origins of that civilization. Uh, we're, we're missing a, a huge part of the story from, from India. The, the, all the coastlines of India, Dwarka's up in the northwest, but down in the southeast you have Mahabalipuram uh, and you have Pumpahar. You have, you have the fact that India was drawing, joined to Sri Lanka during the Ice Age, that mm-hmm. the, the, the land mass extended south almost as far as the Maldives, uh, and there are huge traditions in India about a lost land called Kumari Kandam. Uh, in many ways it is the Indian Atlantis, and Kumari Kandam is described very accurately as a landmass that extended south from the southern tip of India, but that was submerged uh, when the seas became angry and swallowed it up. Mm. Yeah, we... and that's a story that's found all over the world. With the, yeah. the, again, archaeologists are very um, dismissive of myths, uh, but what are we to do with with the, this global tradition of a flood that we find everywhere? Uh, in virtually every culture all around the world and of a few survivors who put together the, the seeds that will be necessary to restore life after the, after the cataclysm. Why is this story told again and again? It's not enough to dismiss it as some kind of fantasy or coincidence. Of course, the myths are the memories I, uh, our, our species has from, from, from a time when no written, written records have survived. I mean, it feels like there's a problem with Western archaeology. They don't really look at the Chinese ancient history. They don't look at Indian Absolutely. or Hindu history, and, yeah. and, in, and in India they have thousands of these very, very old temples that have information in them that we just don't. It, it, we we get trickles of this data. And, and, and something else uh, very special about India: you have a living tradition, uh, which is which is carrying down ideas from the remotest past uh, and and uh, bringing them into the into the modern world. This is where India is very different from, say, Egypt. Because when you go to Egypt and you see the ruins, the majestic, magical ruins of ancient Egypt all around you, the connection to the tradition of ancient Egypt has been severed. Uh, and we are only able to access that tradition through Egyptological interpretations of oh. ancient Egyptian texts. Whereas in the case of India, uh, the, the connection has not been severed. And that's why you don't find a lot of very, very, very old temples in India, because when you have a continuous tradition, well, they continuously rebuild and renovate temples. They don't just leave them there to, you know, fade away. They keep on, they keep on redeveloping them and, and building temples on the same spot. And we see examples of that um, in, many, in many other places. We talked about Chichen Itza. You and I both know that Chichen Itza, uh, the, the Kukul Khan pyramid, is built on top of another pyramid. Uh, and that you can you can actually get inside and and see that inner pyramid with it with its inner shrine and that that, that the case of Cholula in Mexico there's at least six 
pyramids built one on top of the other there. So, mm -hmm. so this is why I think it's important to hang on to the notion that um, the antiquity of ideas is as important as the antiquity of the artifacts and architecture to which those ideas are attached. Mm, fascinating. I would love to hear about your feeling on these different hominins that are popping up around the world. We have uh, the Denisovan, which is some people think that that is those are the former Atlantinians or uh, pre-Diluvian people. We have different hominins popping up around our planet. What is going on? It's like massive panspermia on a global scale. You know, it's crazy. Well, it's, it's certainly causing us to to re, to rethink the, the story of our, our past. Santa and I were were very very privileged privileged to get to Denisova Cave in the south of Siberia. Uh, we made a massive overland journey across Russia in order in order to get there back in 2017. It is a, it is a very very special place. Um, look, uh, what's changed, and it's really all changed since 2010 when the Neanderthal genome was was fully decoded and published. That's that's when we began to get to grips with the notion that, that anatomically modern humans and Neanderthals interbred. And and we now know that the majority of human populations have up to four percent of Neanderthal DNA uh, in their in their DNA. That's when we started to ask ourselves more questions about the Neanderthals. Previously the Neanderthals had been thought to be they were stereotyped as this ignorant, savage brutes, uh, but they were interbreeding with our ancestors. Maybe they weren't so ignorant or savage if they were deemed acceptable and as, as mates. And then we find that actually the Neanderthals were doing art, uh, that there are cave paintings left behind by the Neanderthals, which are tens of thousands of years older than the cave paintings left by anatomically modern humans. It's beginning to look like the Neanderthals were the smart ones. And that they taught they taught anatomically modern humans how to paint. That skill looks like it was transferred from Neanderthals to anatomically modern humans, not the other way round. And in a sense, even talking about anatomically modern humans is unnecessary because Neanderthals survive within us. We are all Neanderthals. Then you have the Denisovans type. They're, they're named after that cave in Siberia where a monk called Denis uh, used to meditate. That's why they're called the Denisovans. Um, and, and it turns out that they are related to Neanderthals and to anatomically modern humans, and that there was interbreeding going on between all of these groups, between anatomically modern humans, Neanderthals, and Denisovans. Furthermore, the Denisovans uh, left behind artifacts uh, that seem to be tens of thousands of years ahead of their time, uh, that anatomically modern humans weren't making until 20,000 years later. Uh, so we're just at the tip of an enormous mystery uh, of uncovering the truth about our past. Um, and, and this is why I like to use the phrase, stuff just keeps on getting older, because it just keeps on getting older. And every time it gets older, look, we, we, we now have the earliest anatomically modern human skulls going back more than 300,000 years um, mm -hmm. from, from Morocco, and certainly close to 250,000 years from, from Ethiopia. Uh, we know that Neanderthals and Denisovans were around for hundreds of thousands of years before that. These were symbolic species, just like ourselves. They were capable of doing everything that we can do. Why it's interesting that stuff just keeps on getting older is that it opens up that window wider and wider for missing elements of the human story. And I, I am convinced we are a species with amnesia. 
mm. uh, and that this very long this very long span of time that precedes the so-called origins of civilization the longer it gets the more difficult it comes to believe that civilization just began suddenly 6000 years ago no it's got much much more ancient origins than that and those origins may not be confined entirely to anatomically modern humans at all temple nowhere near it and then there's a, a glyph on the inside there's a lot of controversy around that but there there are some of these artifacts they do for that reason because they they date a lot of stuff based on the site that they found it so if there's organic material at the site that they found it, what's been I've found it's that's a kind of like a smoking gun piece in all of this, is all the vases. So are you familiar with the, yes, the incredible stone yes, vases yes, that they make yeah, in please Egypt? Please talk about them. Yeah. So they in in there is a, a collection of these things. They're made from igneous stone. They're and Jamie, I've got a few pictures of the vases in that vase directory, and they date back. It's what's interesting to me about these is is that they they they're some of the earliest types of. Uh, artifacts that we find they stretch back far into what we'd call pre-dynastic time basically mesolithic times uh, right back to even 15,000 years ago there was a site called Toshka um, that uh, that was dug up it's underwater now but in this and it was a primitive burial there was a guy uh, that was curled up in this in this burial site on the side go back to that Jamie that one the thin card one. Yeah, what, so, what's going on there so this is an example and these vases display just astonishing aspects of precision and engineering. So this is an example of just how thin this material is. So it's igneous stone. This might be porphyry or something like this. A very, very hard stone, very hard to work, but also brittle when it becomes thin. You can see the giant crystal occlusions, those the white marks in it. This stuff becomes brittle, yet it's been worked down to this thinness because this one's been damaged and you can see how thin that interior mm. wall is. Petrie, Flinders Petrie is a, a great Egyptologist, the first guy to really start applying engineering principles from the industrial age of this stuff he found one he talks about one in his work that was one fortieth of an inch thick wow. a fortieth of an inch thick and the the interesting thing about these vases there's fifty thousand plus of them were discovered beneath the step pyramid of Joza. uh he collected them all up and even in the museum that's at saqqara they talk about yeah this is so i've been down underneath the step pyramid this is a fragment of a of one of these vases that i found you can handle down there and even in the museum there, they talk about, well, these he didn't have them made. He, these were inherited objects from earlier times. Like, they, they get the concept right. And so these things stretch back way back into time. There's pre-dynastic artefacts from pre-dynastic burials. But there's always these sort of arguments, well, can you do this by hand? Can you not? Um, and so recently, there's been some work done. I've been working with a couple of guys, um, the son of uh, Christopher Dunn, who wrote some real seminal uh, textbooks on ancient Egyptian technology, his son, Alex. Uh, and Nick Sierra, they're uh, qualified like professional metrologists. They work they work for Rolls Royce in Indianapolis. They uh, they make like, you know, aerospace parts, turbine blades, things like that. They've got their hands on a pre-dynastic Egyptian vase, and for the first time, they've actually been able to scan this thing using a structured light scanner and define the specific elements of precision on it. And it's just astounding. Like this is. This, this puts the whole concept of can these even remotely been made by hand to bed. Like these things had to have been made on a machine and made with extreme precision because this vase that is, is pre-dynastic, this is a, a picture of the vase here that they found in, in a private collection because I should say generally archaeologists, Egyptologists, they're not engineers. They're not particularly interested in sort of how things were manufactured. So what, what they've done is they've taken this and put this in a machine and it, it, it's a structured light scanner. So it creates like a point cloud of different lights and then you match a geometric shape to it, be that like a, a flat plane, a cylinder, a sphere, a, a cone. 
and then you can perform sort of geometric uh, calculations on it and define things like precision. So if you go back to that, uh, the surface A, the vase lip, right? So this is, you can see down on the bottom, they, they've created a, a, a point cloud of the top of this lip, so the flatness, and it's, they've called this surface A, it's comprised of 3,813 uh, points, and it's within three thousandths of an inch uh, of being basically perfectly flat. Wow. But that's three thousandths of three an inch. Three thousandths of an inch. And this is over who knows how many thousands of years well, of erosion and it, sand and dust and wind. And exactly. It's it's at least five thousand years old. I, I suspect this could be far older than that. Now what's interesting, once you start doing this, and if you go to the next one, Jamie, you now he's now now we're looking at the the lip. So this you take a cylinder and you match, you basically take 10,000 points plus and you match the, the, the inside, the mouth of the vase to a cylinder. And what you can now measure that against the other surface. So if you think of like the top of it as being like the x-axis, this is now your y-axis. So that first symbol here, the perpendicular symbol, what, you sh what it's showing is that how perpendicular is this cylinder on its axis relative to the top of the vase, the surface A that's on the top, within one thousandth of an inch. One thousand. So it's perfectly perpendicular to within one thousandth of an inch of the top of the vase. And then the second reading here shows you how perfectly, what's the circular error, like what's the circularity of it it's within 13 thousandths of an inch of being perfectly circular. How and are you going to do that by hand? You, you, well, you can't. This is, this is the thing. And if you, you, you go literally to, can't? No, the, no one's ever been at you. It gets, you can, you, if you rub two surfaces together, you can make them flat. But when you start looking at the, the real teller in, in precision and in these discussions about ancient engineering, the, the, it's an easy thing to understand when we talk about 90 degree turns and flat surfaces. But what gets really interesting is when you start talking about one surface in relation to another. And remember these objects like the big boxes in the Serapium that weigh like 70 tons, you've got surfaces you know, 11 feet apart. It's the relativity of one surface to another. So how flat, how straight is this in relationship to this surface? Right. And with this vase, the, the, the incredible thing about it is, is that it's, as you go down it, there's a, another slide if go you can look at the, the yeah. Um, and you should mention how much this equipment costs real quick. Well, how yeah, so these technology. structured light scanners are like $250,000. They're, they're professional. Yeah, this is, this is absolutely a tool that gets used in aerospace quite a bit. So no one's ever um, really done this type of work. So... Um, this and it does there's nothing like this approaching you can't do this with handwork this type of thing but if you slip, skip to the next one so now it's this is like this is a great example so what you're doing here is is measuring the circularity go to the next one because the lug handles are kind of the really important part of this it's an interesting thing so for one thing it's showing you that okay they, they solved the problem of carving granite it's made from granite it's actually made from the same rose granite that the, the the box in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid is yeah, not pottery. Just to not in case pottery. someone doesn't right. understand this what this is, right. this isn't pottery. I, People I, can, often can call I pause it pottery. Real quick, yeah. Uh, when you talk about these measurements, yeah, what kind of measurements can be achieved through ceramic pottery? Well, ceramic pottery, if you're spinning on a wheel, I, I'm not even sure. You might be able to get down to to tenths of an inch or 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 or, or half, like. Fraction. But you would never get to a thousand. Not to a thousandth, no. And and this is carved. So this is carved out right. of stone. Right. Um, but I'm stone. just saying, like, if you think about a pottery wheel spinning, yeah. and you think about the precision involved in that, and you look at it, it's beautiful, it seems oh, symmetrical, it seems symmetrical, but nothing no. compared to this kind of symmetry. And so to give you an example, so a thousandth of an inch, uh, if you take a sheet of printer paper like this, uh, this is that's about seven and a half thousandths thick. Holy shit. A, a human hair? Two to three thousandths of an inch. So it's 
half a the human size hair. of a human hair within of being perfect of being within, perfect yes so holy shit that's how that's how precisely aligned the mouth of the vase is now so again we've carved this out of stone and remember they don't even the egyptologists don't say that these they're not spun they're not they're not cast and created they say that the egyptians you know used very primitive tools to make these pounding stones chisels flint chisels what did they say in the face of this they don't, so they don't address data. it. In generally, they don't address the evidence for precision. Should this hold is hold them down, huh? <laughs> Should hold them down. Well, this is what I'm. Like this... literally grab them and, <laughs> yeah. and go. Tell me what the fuck is going on. <laughs> this work should should do a bit of that because there's How always been arguments. How many of these are there? I well, mean, it's not just one perfect one that you're talking no, about. No, oh no, this is the only one they we've managed to scan so far. And I would, I would love to say that if because you, you can't get your hands on these things. In general, um, curators of Egyptology museums aren't interested in their, in their manufacturing or engineering and they don't gain, you don't get access to these vases to do it. This how one came from not, a... How could they not be interested in that? I don't know. It's, it's, it blows my mind. So here's an example of like another perfect... I'd love to scan this one. It's one of my favourites. It's like you can see the symmetry inherent in the vase just in the fact that it's sitting on like almost like the, an eggshell. Like it's, yeah. it's so perfect. Um, but what what it what that study is showing, and what those that that precision that's now been measured is showing that okay, these were turned on a machine, and not only were they turned on a machine, but when you think about the shape of the vase, it has these lug handles right on each side. They're like got little holes. Yeah, through. those can't be turned. Those, those, right. You can't if you think of it spinning, and you and this is being carved by a machine. Right. Those lug handles can't be turned. You would have to cut out like a round thing around it, and then take another tool. And, and shape the lug handles without turning it. Now, in precision manufacturing, when you introduce another tool, that introduces error, even in our best processes today, and we just don't see that on this vase. Like, those lug handles are within one thousandth of an inch of being perfectly aligned with those other surfaces of the vase. It's that, it's that relativity of one section of the vase to another that means, A, unquestionably not possible by hand, but B, this has been designed like somebody made a model of this and they had a very sophisticated bit of machinery that must have carved it out and when we talk about this machinery like what are the what's the speculation <laughs> i mean what do they think was used to carve these things is there any markings on them that would yes. indicate yeah, there is so this is a whole other discussion when you get into the depths of of, of this work so when you look at Ancient Egypt and the way that gets treated, they found tools. And I should say it's very rare to find metal in the ancient world, right? As soon as the Bronze Age starts, any metal, super precious, gets smelted down, turned into tools, weapons, things like that. So it's very rare to find metal in general. But across ancient Egypt, they found a bunch of tools. So they found some, you know, copper chisels, bronze chisels, very primitive stuff, uh, some wooden, you know, squares and plumb bobs, uh, pounding stones, flint chisels. So those are the tools that are found and in general... It's like the, the, the orthodoxy here in the academia will do everything they can to just hammer everything you find into this, into this box and say, these are the tools we found, so therefore everything's made by these tools. Now, outside of that, there's a whole realm of what I would call machining marks that exist all over these sites in Egypt. There's a place called Abu Sia that's been closed to the public for more than 100 years. You have to get special permission to go there. It's one of my favourite sites. It's an old kingdom site, like Fifth Dynasty. And all over this site, you find amazing evidence for massive circular saws you see machining marks there are there are these tube drills I, i've got like an hour-long documentary just on 
the tube drills, because there's been an argument going on for 150 years about the tube drills, there is evidence for very sophisticated and powerful tools that is etched into these artifacts from the very earliest points in Egypt all over the place. And a lot of these things, they disappear in later periods of time. Go back to that image, Jimmy, the, Jamie, you just had look at that. Yeah, so here's an example. Um, I, I, I didn't send you any of the machining marks, but I can show them to you at some point. Um, yeah, so you, you find uh, the tube drills are really interesting because it's a very thin tool. And, and what they would do, they range in size from like a half inch up to nine inches. And are those plugs that were removed yeah. from the stone? So it's like a hollow, a hollow tool that gets that gets cut down, and then you snap off the core. And now Flinders Petrie, uh, he was uh, you familiar with Petrie? He was he was around like late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. I I use his work a lot in the stuff that I do because he was the first guy to apply engineering principles to what we saw, which is kind of this meta point that messes with my head a bit. In that it took our civilization up to the industrial age to even be able to put some of this stuff into context. Like anyone else that looked at this stuff before we understood what machining was, what working in this stone was, what it looks like to cut stone with a circular saw, we, you, just, you don't have the context to explain it. So we had to get to the industrial age and develop sort of mass manufacture and engineering for us to even recognize what we're seeing here. Wow. So he, he found, uh, there's a famous core, it's called Petrie's core number seven. And it was, it's, a, it's a drill core from one of these holes. It's in granite. And it's located in the Petrie Museum. And it, this museum is one that actually allows research appointments and you can analyze it. And it's been analyzed several times. There's been an argument that's been going on for literally 150 years about this core because what Petrie found and what Chris Dunn, right Chris Dunn later verified, yeah, that's Petrie's core number seven, exactly right there. That, in fact, might even be Chris Dunn's photo. Um, those spiral, gro that groove that goes around it, very obvious striations, right? Mm-hmm. So it's been incontrovertibly shown that that's a spiral. It's a, it's a spiral. So it, it's not like just horizontal striation. So if you can imagine the way we do it today, with our, we have tube drills and core drills. It spins really fast, makes lots of little marks. There's been studies done looking at those, at those sort of marks. That's not what we're seeing here. What we see here is a continuous spiral groove of at least two points. So it's, it's a twin spiral that runs down the length of the core. Now, from that and analyzing that, you can determine a few things, things like how fast was this drill or how, how quickly was this drill penetrating the granite? And Petrie and Dunn both analyzed it and looked at it. Well, it's about a one in 60 rate. So for each, say 60 inches of horizontal travel, it's going one inch into the stone. So imagine that. So if you, if you take, a, take a spiral and, and straighten it out, like, mm -hmm. and you just imagine, right, 60 inches this way, you're getting one inch of vertical travel. That, that figure is 500 times greater than we can achieve today in terms of how, 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 how fast it penetrates the granite. 500, 500 times, times greater. Now, it, it, it doesn't mean it cut quicker. It could have been moving slowly, like it might have been turning slowly. Right. But it's penetrating the granite at a rate far greater than what we can achieve with our technology today. This is why it's so important to bring outside eyes into this, whether it's yeah. an aerospace engineer. Like this is, you know, going back to Troy, that was discovered by a businessman. He wasn't an archaeologist. That's something that most people don't know. Mm -hmm. It's like when you bring an outside set of eyes with different sets of experiences, they'll pick up on things that others wouldn't. That was something I came up with quite a while ago because I believe when we have hard money, we build long-term things. Uh, I first, When I first discovered Bitcoin, I kind of thought about my time when I was in the corporate world and I would... Uh, handle sales up in uh, New York City. I'd be walking around Manhattan. I would see these churches with these sculpted uh, outsides, like literally in granite, like some guy 
sat on a scaffold and hand chiseled this ornate, gorgeous uh, artwork on the outside of this church in the 1800s. And how we could never build anything like that in a fiat system. We can't make that investment that is designed to be there forever, right? To be there as long as possible. And so that was a big part of my Bitcoin truth, my Bitcoin uh, realization and, and going from not just being a Bitcoiner, but actually understanding the whole point of it. What, what, where's kind of your uh, viewpoint coming from with uh, Bitcoin? Well, so I'm one of the one of those people that um, interacted with Bitcoin really early on, uh, like 2011, actually a roommate mining it um, on his laptop. Um, and so back then, coins didn't mean anything at all. They were completely obscure files, essentially, just you know, dot dot files didn't mean anything. And so I, I had opportunity to get in super, super early to the point where I was holding hundreds of, of different coins at, at, at different points. Um, and I never learned how to interact with them, how to use them, what they even meant, what they were, what their potential was. All of that I left off off the table. Um, and I, I kind of lost track of, of, of Bitcoin and what was going on. I, I obviously didn't keep any of those coins. So I was kind of one of those people that, that had the opportunity really early on, and then I dismissed it because it didn't it didn't mean anything to me then. Um, and then it wasn't until 2018 that during the bull market, when everyone started talking about Bitcoin, um, that I kind of was like, oh, hey, wait a second, Bitcoin. I remember those. Wait, they're worth $20,000 now? And, and then I was bitter. I was just instantly bitter, and I was bitter for, for probably until 2020. I was actually... Um, I, sort of somebody who was like, good, I hope Bitcoin fails. Like, I think that's a, that's a scam and it, and it fell through. That, that was actually my original perspective on Bitcoin. Um, what's interesting to me, though, is, of course, like you said, sound money and not just sound money, but actually what's, what's, what's more profound than sound money to me is post-state consensus. The ability to actually reform consent outside of Dunbar's number. So before Bitcoin, actually, we've never, ever had the ability to do this as human beings. Like there's there's literally no way to do it. Um, you, you can you can achieve consent within Dunbar's number. Um, and that's what a tribe is, essentially. And then outside of Dunbar's number, you either use, you know, some proxy to interface with that other group. Um, and generally that will rest on, you know, religion or you know spirituality or there's usually some interface method trade oftentimes um that kind of enables some form of of peace to exist between groups of people and like if you look at north america we had a horm or hormesis i would say here before colonization where all the tribes sort of maintained a certain balance and a symbi symbiosis within their environment and in proximation to other tribes um, but now, since we have Bitcoin, we can actually expand that consent past our group without an intermediate party being the state, right, or a colonial force to, to force people together under threat of violence. I think that that's the real crazy implications of Bitcoin that go beyond just um, a value ledger. You know, it's interesting, too, when you bring up the word tribal, I think a lot of people, because of the way we've been educated that immediately sets them to thinking about North American native tribes, where the truth is we are all in our genesis tribal. Europe was a tribal society before it became a state-controlled society. You know, you could say the same for Asia. You can say the same for Africa. You can say for the North American, South America. And there were societies here of what we refer to as Native Americans today that went to the status level. If you look at the Maya or the Mexia or something like that, those were status societies. And yet there was this 
coexistence of tribal society that didn't really want to be part of that. And it's been pretty much the whole world has that. There's there's always been anarchists, no matter what the name is that they call themselves. And I think that most anarchists in some way are tribalists as well. And I think that's where people have a breakdown and they lose concept of no rulers doesn't mean no rules. There's certain mm-hmm. ways that you treat each other, right? And if you don't, then you're not welcome here. Uh, no, fuck that. So you think they, it's they UFOs? Like, sorry? So you think it's UFOs? No, I, well, I don't know, but I think that there were people there who had this technology, and you know, at the, it's also where we got the we had the technology to go to the moon. Apparently, you know what Bob Lazar? We says? don't have that anymore. Do you know what Bob Lazar says about uh, the UFOs? Who? Bob Lazar. Oh, Bob Lazar. No. You know what he says about one of them they got from an archaeological dig. Oh. When he was talking about back engineering these crafts, he says like one of them was really old, and they think they got it from an archaeological dig. Like I mean, that was the discussion. I mean, it would be kind of crazy for me not to believe a that there's a lot out there in the universe, and there has to be more than just us. It's also crazy to not you know to just discount that we've been bullshitted for the, all of our lives, and there's they got a lot of cool shit going on, and we just could be a bunch of peons. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me either. But that's the one that's so It doesn't bother me either. It doesn't bother that, me. That one pulls me in more than any other story. Yeah. Is the story of, like, the government has a, a, a crashed UFO that they're ah, examining. Cool. I believe I in the firmament, find, baby. The firmament. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I find that so much more fascinating than any other conspiracy mm, because okay. it's, it's got this this one element and that's the the size of the universe. That one element that makes it, of course, there's other life out there. What are they like? And are they here? And have they been here? And if they were here all the time, how much would they let themselves be known? I mean, how much would they be like, let's just keep an eye on these fucks in case they decide to blow themselves up. The let's one just I- stop that from happening and just observe and let them work it out. Because the only way they're going to really evolve is to sort out their differences and figure things out correctly and move to the next stage of existence. But they're not quite there yet, so let's just hover. Settle down, guys. You know. Yeah, possible. Yeah. What I like is the the fact that what was his story. The missile silos, you know, they oh, yeah. uh, they wouldn't open, and right. these, and uh, saucers were hovering over them, and it wouldn't mm-hmm. happen. You know, call it what you want, but I, it makes me feel good. Yeah, they make me feel good. Like, <laughs> nukes who? just nukes just won't work. Yeah, <laughs> whatever like, it is. These guys. Well, that's you know the story is that after um, I mean that's UFO folklore involves Fat Man and Little Boy. Yeah, because UFO folklore is that after they dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, everything ended. Then <laughs> you started seeing all these UFOs, and then it became uh, much more prevalent. And the idea was like, hmm. okay, they've hit this like new milestone. We got to keep an eye on these wacky fucks. Hmm. So everything post um, detonation of the atomic bombs. You know, whatever atomic, well, the Trinity experiment, well, all sh- those, all the different atomic bombs, like that's, there's a big uptick, apparently, mm-hmm. supposedly, in UFO sightings. But I mean, like, well, they should do something because it's getting a little heated out there. I mean, it's where, a are, where, where are they going to drop in and say enough already? I think one of the things that you would want out of a culture is for them to figure it out for themselves. Of course. And I think that that's what you want from your children. And uh, I think that's what uh, I would want if I was observing another culture. I would want them to figure it out for themselves. Wow. 
You know, <laughs> yeah. you know what I'm saying? Because I, I do. I know that you like time, this. I know you like this. Well, over time, if you look at you know what we are like now, as opposed to what we were like a thousand years ago, mm-hmm. it's, it's people are way less violent. It's way safer. It's better. We're more educated. We understand things more. We're more compassionate. We're more open-minded, and that continues to move forward. And as long as it's in that going in that correct direction, mm-hmm. then you have to be really careful of power mm-hmm. and evil people. That's not going to kill us. Yeah. The, the connection to the Internet, us and the Internet becoming one, the singularity, the AI singularity that is, is, seems, a, seems just like it's a given at this point where you know, we'll be even connected even tighter to the network. Yeah. And a lot of people seem to like the idea. We already like our... our our watches, you know, monitoring us and telling us what to do and when to get up and when to when to sit and when to run and how fast to cycle. That is the, in my mind, the true danger. Everything else doesn't matter. We we will kill ourselves that way before anything else does. I'm quite convinced of that. It's possible, or it's possible we nuke ourselves into the Stone Age before we get a chance. How much do you think they'd tell us? They wouldn't. No. Yeah. I wouldn't uh, say a goddamn thing because we would go crazy. Uh, we'd wind up looting all the targets. That's right. Yeah. Target, 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 be run. target and Walmart. <laughs> smash I'm going to Kmart. Ground. I'm going to last yeah, Kmart. Starbucks. Um, real quick, uh, did you hear what Elon Musk said on the Full Send podcast a few months ago? What? So there's uh, Full Send, the Nelk Boys, awesome guys, great podcast. Um, Elon Musk was on there. It's like four months ago. It has like 15 million views. It's a three-hour podcast. And at two hours and like 53 minutes... Uh, they start talking about cataclysms and ice ages. And Elon Musk, this is out of all things that were discussed on the podcast, in my mind, the most interesting part of it all got zero coverage. It's like nobody talked about it, and it's because it's two hours and 50 minutes in. But Elon Musk says a couple things within just a few minutes. He says, if you want to go down a deep, deep rabbit hole, look into ice ages and how often they happen. He goes on to say that... Well, if let's listen to this. Okay. Listen to if you back. read about ice ages. Yeah. Really? Like yeah, what? deep rabbit hole on ice ages. What's so intriguing about them? The whole earth has just been through like, <laughs> the whole earth is just freezing? Like I said, this deep rabbit hole on ice ages. Deep rabbit hole. Where, where should we there's go? There's so many. Guess, Wait, Wikipedia, there's so many. Wikipedia, 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 yeah. It was like a little bit of a tidbit of it. Yeah, why do you love it? <laughs> why do I love it? I mean, I think it's just interesting. So interesting. That's that, that That how much Earth's climate has changed. And even where the where the magnetically where the poles are have has shifted over time so um you know anyway there's there's also been times where in the past where our galaxy has like collided with another galaxy um that that probably you know threw things for a bit of a loop at the time was there like a conspiracy when it comes to ice ages or anything like that or not really no okay when was the last ice age how long ago was that well, we're technically in uh-huh. <laughs> sort of an ice age right now. Although it depends on what you call an ice age. What um, happened to global warming? Wait, but yeah, how so? Like, what defines an ice age at that point? Global warming is like not like it's cool anymore. Rabbit, Elon, it's, is it? it's, it's, it's a deep rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> what do you do when you go in a, down a deep rabbit hole, though? Is it YouTube videos, books, or how do you educate yourself? Yeah, like Wikipedia, go on the internet, and yeah, b- b- books and clicking around the internet, googling Wikipedia, you know, YouTube, whatever. Um, so Twitter, um, can be interesting. Um, so the, I think there was probably something significant that happened at the, um, in, in the last ice age, because we don't see any evidence of writing. 
I want to say I'm using Ice Age in the colloquial term um, of like when, when when was it very snowy uh, and and where, where the glaciers came down far and where where summer was short and winter was very long, and that was about ten thousand years ago. Um, so something something happened around I think around that Ice Age that because we we see no writing. How no no writing before that ice age, and we we start to see writing pop up in multiple places on Earth after that after the most recent colloquially termed ice age. Um, so, yeah, um, but like I said, there have been times when Earth has been extremely tropical and where it's been a snowball. Um, but these these tend to occur over very long periods of time. The the global warming thing we're talking about here. That's about it. Mm. He knows. Uh, for such an unbelievably smart individual and as rich and powerful as he is, I look at these topics that we're into, cataclysms, Younger Dryas, uh, lost ancient technology. Magnetic poles. That's oh, yeah. the one thing. That's, That's I would like to dive one. into that. So they were moving millions of yards. They moved 277 million yards of silt hydraulically, which was just... 17 million more yards than they dug out of the Panama Canal. And so all those bones, there was a guy named Childs Frick in New York. His father was Henry Frick, the U.S. Steel magnet with uh, Carnegie. They decided to get a hold of it, the USS R&M Company in Boston. And they said, hey, how about we finance to get these bones out of Alaska and bring them to AMNH? So they worked a three-way deal with the University of Alaska Fairbanks, uh, President Bunnell up there. And a guy named Otto Geist started going out with a bone wagon. They collected bones for from 1928 till 1958. Now, they were only supposed to s collect scientifically important bones. And for those, they were supposed to do research on them and write reports and submit them to my company. Well, they didn't do that. They collected the bones, sent them to New York City, where they just languished in the basements of the M&H. When I bought the company, I started going through my files, and I found this deal. And I got a hold of the University of Alaska, and I said, these are, these are our company bones. Let's go find out what's, what's going on with them. They haven't done the reporting they're supposed to. So myself, along with uh, a guy named... Uh, I got the reports right here. Dick Osborne, who was the author of this report. I'm going to give you this report, by the way, because I've told everybody that I'm going to start a bone rush. A bone rush? Yes, sir. What does that mean? Well, they took 500,000 or so bones from Fairbanks to New York City, left them in the crates, and there's a picture on there someplace when I went there to visit in crates that have yet to be opened. But in the 40s, they took about a whole boxcar load of these bones. They ran out of storage, and they dumped them in the East River. What? In the East River. And I've told everybody that, again, with Joe Rogan, the only place I'm going to divulge that location... So all that stuff in those pictures is all from your property? Yes, sir. 
what a crazy piece of land you stumbled upon. It's unbelievable. And so they dumped how much in the East River? I'm told by Dick Osborne a boxcar load, 50,000 or 50 tons. Just threw it in the water? Yes, sir. Is it still there? I don't know. That's could, it, could it be still there? Could be. Some of it, maybe? Certainly the tusks. Do you know where it was? Yes, sir. Let so you're going to hire some divers? What are you going to do? I've told... No. You have a lot of people that follow you on your Instagram. I got, I got a lot of people that follow me, thanks to you. And uh, I said, you know, those bones, as far as I'm concerned, that they dumped in the East River, they're, they're no longer mine. They're finders keepers. So if any of you guys want to go out and find some bones, I'll tell you exactly where the fuck they're at. That's why, for example, I'm interested in ancient maps that have survived and been copied and recopied down the ages, which include very accurate relative longitudes. Longitude is a technological problem. Solving, solving longitude requires an accurate chronometer that can keep accurate time at sea. And our civilization didn't do that until the second half of the 18th century. So when we find maps that go back to the 15th or 14th century, which we know were copied from even older source maps now lost, which include precise relative longitudes, then we have a problem. And the problem gets even bigger when, when uh, those maps show the world as it looked during the last ice age. And it gets, and it gets, uh, and it gets bigger still when those maps show continents such as Antarctica, which our civilization didn't discover until the 19th century. The, the Adam and Eve video? Oh, oh yeah. The Jay and Thomas thing? Jesus Christ. That's an interesting one. And is I that – how how much of that is uh, agreed upon, that there could be a time where the magnetic poles actually shift? So yeah. this is science. They, they say that the last one was like 778,000 years ago and we're more – we're like something like 200,000 years overdue. Um, <gasps> but the Adam and Eve story, the theory of that is that these – it happens in cycles of 6,500 years and that it's a 90-degree flip, but six days later, or on the seventh day, it corrects itself. The planet a, flips, not it, just it, the... It, that, correct. It's a, it's a planet flip, 90-degree, and that because of it, the Earth essentially does a standstill. The sun will be direct, will basically stay in the same spot, causing heating like we've never experienced, and that the wind and the waters continue with their momentum. Because essentially the wind travels at approximately 1,000 miles an hour at the equator. So the theory is that when that event happens, it's going to be cataclysmic. And here's the wild thing is that in that document it says uh, a continental-sized tsunami being two miles high. Well, I showed you the Emikusi volcano in Africa in the Sahara, which is at 11,300 feet that has salt as well as evidence of gastropods, sea life. That's two miles high. Yes. And I'm like – it's just it would make a lot of sense like if you look at the bible and involving like revelations and it's saying like six uh, days six days on the seventh day yeah. god rested in that document it says six days things start uh, simmering down a bit in the set you know by day seven things are start starting over new so what's the science behind this complete reversal of the magnetic pole so real quick this is the i i the part that sets me off about this is that any article you ever read on this it makes it crystal clear that this will not be apocalyptic 
<laughs> Maybe we'll have some, no, we'll potentially have some satellite communication issues that could affect our power grid and telecommunication systems, and that's going to be unfortunate. But don't worry, it's not a doomsday. I'm like, okay, first of all, if the grid goes down, that is doomsday. But number two, they don't know what they're talking about because they claim that the geo geomagnetic pole shift is because of the interior, whether it's the iron core or whatever it is, the molten core, does a shift, and because of it, that's why the, the compass will flip. But I'm like, if you look at the nature of earthquakes, they some originate in the crust, others originate in the mantle, in the in the parts that are that aren't solid. So I'm like, if you're saying that the interior that is molten does a shift, why on earth would you suggest that it wouldn't cause earthquakes or volcanic activity on the surface? So I feel like the I every article I ever read on geomagnetic pole shifts, they go out of their way to say, Don't worry, it's fine. And I'm like, but yet the evidence shows that it's accelerating. Back in just sure. the 1990s, uh, it was traveling the pole. The North Pole was transitioning at 10 miles a year. Now it's at 40 or almost 40 miles. It's accelerating. And then Adam and Eve story, it talks about – actually, no, not the Adam and Eve story. There was a documentary on Nova years ago that the evidence shows that when they've studied all their other volcanic rock – uh, for prior known pole shifts, because keep in mind, there's hundreds that are known. This has happened throughout millions and millions of years. This is mainstream science. The poles do flip. They, they, but it's not that the Earth flips over. It's that the inside core does, and so your magnetic compass will flip. Like what causes it? Uh, so the whatever that molten core is, it does a shift inside. It allegedly happens in cycles, um, and we're long overdue. And when it happens, the other theory is that the, the Earth's shields will be diminished. Well, definitely. So the magne we know two things right now is that the, the pole is moving. So it's off. I think it's, it's off the – even the South Pole might be off of Antarctica at this point, like the magnetic south. And then the magnetic field consequently to this movement is weakening. So we know our magnetic field – and that's where a lot of that danger is going to come from is, is if the magnetic field keeps weakening. Now everything cosmically that happens – is going to hit the earth and, partic and particularly us with our electronics, it's all going to get uh, ease, more easily smashed because the, the magnetic field is what protects us from solar flares and cosmic radiation and all this stuff. So as, as, as the field and the acceleration of that weakening of the field, sorry, is accelerating. So it's, it's, getting, it's getting weaker faster. So we seem to be heading towards an unknown or undetermined time where the poles may shift. Like the, the polarity of the, the, the Earth will shift, yeah, and the compass is... And are there any estimates when. on when this could possibly take place? Uh, according to every article I ever read, like, oh, don't worry, it's probably be another thousand years. Yeah, like, you have be. no idea what you're talking about. It's accelerating. And if you look, there's a... there. You don't have to Google this, Jamie. I don't know what the... There's a mountain chain in eastern Oregon where it's the most... Uh, evidence of a pole shift, that there was uh, a volcano that was active during the shift. And if you take a compass along the the volcanic rock the compass will slowly start to change and yeah. so wherever like pottery or volcanic rock solidifies that wherever the north pole is at that time the it's an imprint and the compass will continue to show that it's really fun take a compass around volcanic rock and it'll it'll move the compass to wherever the north pole was then but here's the interesting part is that what it shows is that the pole shifts start slow and then they accelerate to the point where uh the day that it happens you could potentially see the compass slowly moving. And then when you go back to this Adam and Eve story talking about the pole shift, they say that the event happens in approximately a quarter of a day, so six hours. So it's like it starts – it comes out of nowhere. And I'm like what if – like I'm into the cosmic impact. that There's unbelievable evidence that definitely happened. But there's other things that happen on Earth, whether it's super volcanoes. What if that's related to pole shifts as well? And the reason why the evidence wouldn't be 
uh, necessarily that we couldn't find it is because if the Adam and Eve story, if the if the details discussed in it are accurate, the reason why we're not seeing the evidence of it is because it flips right back and thus masks the evidence that it ever happened. So it's pretty wild. You guys are freaking me the fuck yeah. out, man. <laughs> hey, can you uh, let's just text Elon real quick? He knows. He talks about no writing before ten thousand years, yeah. and then he's saying it afterwards, and he's talking about deep, deep rabbit hole. I, I listen to what he says. He's careful with his words. And I mean, if since we know there's been five interglacial periods over the last 450,000 years, this is the topic. You want to see something else? Donald, President Trump said it too. What did he say? He was, I have the, um, I have the video on my, my laptop. It's only 30 seconds long. If you YouTube uh, Donald Trump on climate, uh, climate scientists, basically they're talking about you know, global warming. And he says, he basically interrupts and says, it's going to cool for us though, isn't it? And uh, the scientist is like, oh, that's not what the evidence shows. And he starts, he kind of laughs. He goes, I'm not so sure you know that. And I'm like, of course he would know. People are like, oh, Donald Trump's anti science He's stupid. I'm like, he didn't just pull that out of his ass. He was, was this saying when something. when he was the president? Yes, this was just a few years ago. This is probably his last year of his term. Um, it's, I, had, I have the clip on my laptop. It's a 30-second clip or maybe 20 seconds. He said it's going to cool first, though, before, isn't it? And I'm like... I look at what Musk well, is saying and this evidence of the pole shift. I think that the true data on Earth is that the Earth is cold most of the time, that right now we should be grateful that it's nice and cozy because we can live when it's warm. But I think that the data might indicate that Earth is cold more often than it's hot. Well, that's what Randall Carlson has said. And mm -hmm. what Randall Carlson said that really freaked me out, he goes, global warming's not scary. He goes, global cooling, is scary. that's what's really scary. But we're so concerned with our own guilt and impact because of industrialized society and what sort of, you know, impact we're having on the climate and the earth and our air. And, and then there's this narrative that just gets repeated over and over and over again, this fear mongering and everyone gets freaked out. It's right. not to say that we aren't polluting. We certainly are. Not to say that we shouldn't improve. We certainly should. Sure. Yep. But if the fucking magnetic poles might shift and we might get hit by a giant rock from space, yeah. we might have bigger problems. Yeah. And right. we're going to be concentrating on nonsense, which is really par for the course with human beings. We're going to be concentrating on these things that we're, we're really not going to fix over the short term right. when something might happen that do, it, it makes all of it a moot point. This is what the doomsday people say. Were you going to say something? To yeah, I was just going to say, like, that's the analogy is a great one that from my, my friend George Howard says, it's like we're sitting in a car arguing about what, what's, what channel the radio is tuned to, but the car's sitting on a train track. Right. right? And the train's coming eventually. <laughs> yeah. Because the climate, the climate change that we're going to get from, yeah, catastrophic impact or any of these other uh, <sighs> events that inject kind of energy in from the exterior system. I mean, it's just all of this current discussion piles into nothingness. And, and then you, there's super volcanoes too, that which too, yeah. happen all the time. Which what would, about Yellowstone? Yellowstone's yeah. overdue. Yellowstone right. is, is a continent killer. Yeah. I mean, we have no safeguards in place. We, there's no... We, we're lucky that the last essentially 10,000 years, with a couple of little blips, things like Burkle Crater... We've had really calm, pleasant weather for most of it. I mean, that's why our civilization has risen. Because yeah. if you look at the temperature record and the swings from cold to even colder and back again, I mean, it's it's up and down. There was all sorts of nasty things happening, you know, more than 10,000 years ago. And, and ever since then, it's this pretty straight line. It's the reason that we're a civilization now. And because we think in such short-term time frames, human lifetimes or, you know, even yeah. just a couple hundred years, we just ignore that stuff but yeah if you extend the timeline out far enough these things are going to happen again 
and we should probably be yeah a bit more conscious of them and like yeah that's that's the threat that would that, suck. That would too. suck. That would I'd, suck. I'd, I'd love to be the, the guy, you know, that sees all the zombies around him. That's kind of <laughs> cool. You're like, oh, you know. I think we become a new thing. That's what I think. Ooh. I think just like we used to be some sort of a primitive hominid, I think we've yeah. become some sort of a, a, a cyborg. And I think that's inevitable. I think, I think we're looking at life uh, in a very biological way. Like we're only looking at life as being like tissues and blood and cells. And I think we're going to get to a time in our lifetime where we combine with technology to the point where we don't think about life that way anymore. And we think about artificial life as being life. And that's going to get weird as fuck. Because if a trans woman can uh, go into the girl's bathroom... For for a tampon. Yeah. uh, They could if they want. Yeah. But if if you're okay with that, are you okay with the the next thing which would be an artificial person an artificial person being recognized as a person like a person that's created like if you're if you like it's everybody wants to be open-minded and i want to be open-minded like i'm for gay marriage i'm for trans rights i'm for everybody to be equal but then if you start making people are those people equal Mm -hmm. like if you start making artificial people are what is that like like, what if it's an artificial adult human that you just made? Like, and they talk and they hang out. Does that get to vote? Does that, right, that's does a good that, question. Does it get to use the adult bathroom? It's only been alive a day. Mm-hmm. Like, where do you let it out there and count on its programming? Like, are we going to come to a point in time where our new dilemma is not, do, do you get to use the bathroom with the gender that you associate with, mm-hmm. or whether or not, biological people are people are the only people or whether like these artificial people are people too like if, the, if we get to the point where we're biological people accept uh, artificial people well, they're people too those people are going to run us because they're going to be way smarter they're going to be able to reprogram but themselves will, will we be of any use to them it's not use if they don't have our instincts, all of our instincts are survival instincts. Mm-hmm. Our instincts are to get away from predators and avoid neighboring tribes and to learn and grow and figure things out. Mm-hmm. But if they're artificial, they don't have any instincts. Like what they are is what they are. They've, they've been created, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no reason for them to have this built-in programming to avoid predators and darkness and be afraid of heights. Mm-hmm. All that shit's out. Now they can program themselves and make themselves the most sophisticated form of whatever software can run on whatever hardware is available and then they'll just improve that hardware and then you have gods and you have gods like within a matter of a couple of years i think we should have stopped this shit (laughs) when the fleshlight came out that should have been the last human technology integration ever we should have stopped there we're gonna have artificial people (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that are enhanced. We're going to have people that are enhanced with technology that makes them cyborgs. And they're going to have all the human instincts and greed and emotions and lust connected to godlike powers. I love you, Joe Rogan, because whenever we're done with the talk, you always go here, and I love it. I know that we're almost done. We're almost done. I think that's going to happen. take it to the ultimate. It will take a while, though. I don't think it's going to take that long. Let's party. Let's have a good time. Let's love each other in We're the, the last of the Mohicans, buddy. We're the last of the people that grew up with no internet. We grew up with cable television being a novelty. We grew up with 
fucking answer machines being crazy. We grew up with call waiting and remember, call forwarding, you'd caller have to, ID. You had that little thing to beep into the phone yes. to, get, to retrieve your messages. Oh, my that goodness. I had a beeper. I love those. I had a beeper. Beepers were amazing. Beepers were the shit. Not even a beeper. It was, it was just a thing. You called your, yeah. your own number, the answering machine. You 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 gave it the tones right. and it would the, rewind the tape, right. the cassette, That's and then right. it, would, it would start to play That's your right. messages. You would do it through the tone of your, your, your thing. Yeah. And then I had a beeper too. I yep, had one of those of for a little while. I had, I had beepers, earlier absolutely. cell phone. This this fucking natural course of progression is unstoppable. And the way people are addicted to TikTok, that ain't shit. That ain't shit. Now, if you want to compared know, compared to something that gets into your actual mind itself. I think we've discussed it before. There's a a, a book or a, a manuscript called Industrial Society and Its Future, and it predicted this entirely and where we're going and yeah. and how this is going to end and the reason why the author of that document is in jail is because uh he was the professor known as the unabomber and he mm. killed people that he was so convinced that what he was saying was right that he killed people blew them up so that the new york times and the washington post would publish his manuscript which they did yeah and if you read that it's on the internet it's in the library it's, mm -hmm. it's not an illegal book it's or manuscript is very interesting because he predicts it with people who are over socialized and undereducated. Hello, yep, hello, that's where we are right now. But you know, he was a part of the Harvard LSD studies. Oh, yeah, he totally got MK Ultra. Beautiful, oh, MK yeah. Oh, yeah. altered the shit out of that dude, and which then, also turns out to be true. Yeah, <laughs> so there's there's it's old, old, old shit that is never discussed. And if only they could do that, so and so I think that's what Kanye is trying to do. He's trying to say we need a conversation about about the history of these two tribes, mm. tribes, all Americans, but tribes, because we're all Im immigrants one way or the other, and that's not happening. I think that's what Kanye is trying to do, and it's above my pay grade. But there's something there that it, you know he should be able to speak. But he, I mean, oh man, it's just that's not how the world works, bro. If you just go everywhere and you know you're gonna. People also get tired of it, and yeah. so. But the answer to that problem is never to just like ban. No, I mean completely uh, silence. Get rid of them. Remove them from the platform because no. they're they're that's they're, bad. They've come up with some fucking egregious reasons to remove people from social media platforms, like really fucked sure. up reasons. Yeah. So this is this is just the way of the world. It's the way of the world. You it's, are the, you are the, the the exception, which is very very exceptional. What you are doing is. You know, seemingly you're not a puppet for Putin or a shill for the CIA. Um, it's very exceptional what you do. It's it's you are a dare I say it a national treasure. Oh well, that's all sweet of you. Yeah, I mean, listen, that. you're the podfather. You're the fucking dude who originated this thing. You really did. You you're the first ever podcaster. You're you're mm. fucking patient zero. Invented the idea. Yeah. 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 And and where that came from, I don't know. It's just I was. Um, you were there. It was like I saw the iPod. I saw what Dave Weiner was doing. I said, let's put this together, and boom, it was podcasting. And then I just started podcasting uh, so that developers, software developers, would come and make app or applications. And we what year was this app. again? Um, 2004, I think. Wow. It's yeah, like, so it was five years later when I did my first podcast. Well, but I had done a couple of people's before I did mine. Like I did Adam Carolla's. Mm -hmm. I remember Adam Carolla went to podcasting from the radio after he got kicked off the radio. Yeah, yeah he, he got, like, he got oh. kicked off, and the next day he – and that was great. And that was before I did my podcast. I remember going to his studio going, oh, this is crazy. He's got like a radio studio. He set up a radio studio. He could just do the radio on mm -hmm. the internet. Well, you invented this, buddy. You well, you're, you're being way too kind. I mean, I just – 
Dave Weiner, of course, was a part of it, and it, it happened. I think our genius was we didn't try to patent it or to copyright it mm -hmm. or you know just let it let it be what it is. And that's we were always we'll be free believers in the open web, the open internet, and stay away from anything that's centralized. We're all going to be intertwined into some weird network that's wireless, all minds connected, and you 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 have to opt in. What are you going to do, walk around naked, put some clothes on? Everybody has clothes on. What do you do, walk around with no wire in your head? Everybody has a wire, Adam. Yeah. Get that wire. Yeah. The wire is so much better than not having the wire, and you protect others. Oh, is it? Yes. <laughs> That's right. If you get a wire. And, it, and it's good for you Ukraine. Others. It's good for Ukraine. It's good for Ukraine. <laughs> it's good for <laughs> transgender librarians yes, yeah, in, the, in yes, Ukraine. Yes, nuke yeah, the gay whales. We specifically yeah. support. We have to drill for trans people. We have to drill oil for gay rights. You heard it here first, ladies and gay gentlemen. Gay people are disproportionately affected mm. by lube prices. Yeah. We have to drill oil. What's crazier, that or Jesus is real? I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't, we're, it's a toss-up, brother. It's a toss-up. Maybe Jesus was real. Yeah. I'm, I'm willing to think that maybe there was a, Jesus was real. It's just like that he was the son of God. Like, I need some evidence. I need a little bit of evidence. I will send you Evidence Demands a Verdict. It's a great book. What does it say? It's an outline of all. It really proves with empirical evidence based upon writing and artifacts, etc., that this happened. But how can they? How can you possibly you can prove... Never, you can never get to the end, of course not. Right. But you can never it, prove. You, you can prove that people mm, believed it. Yeah, but you, how could you prove correct. that someone was actually the son of God? No. I, or are we all? Of course we're, we're so all then, God. Of course he was. 100% God. So if he was, he was one of us, he was the teacher, he though. was the son of God because we're all children of I'm God. I'm with that. I'm right? with that, yeah. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe I, it's a puzzle. It, it, it's it, a puzzle. Look... The, all the writings, all the gospel, it, it's not all one language. There's a whole bunch of different versions of it. Yeah. It's meant to be interpreted by us, by humans. That's my, my opinion. Right? I think it would be amazing to be able to put yourself in the mindset of someone who lived, you know, 2000 B.C. and, and read it in ancient Hebrew. Can you imagine what that experience is like if you could read it in that language that's both mathematical and also mm -hmm. it's like letters double as numbers and each, well, tell each me word has a numerical value mm -hmm. to it. Like that must have been a yeah. amazing. Well, time. look at the pyramids. Mm -hmm. It's it's all the same time. Look at the pyramids, man. That's even that's some crazy before. ass shit. Yeah. The pyramids. So Incredible. there was something going on. Something was going. Maybe on. they were much more advanced than than we are right now. Maybe we're just the dumb shits that uh, that are left over after. You know, the, uh, Noah's Ark. I don't know. You know what? <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot. I don't know if you ever pay attention to the Randall Carlson, Graham Hancock podcast that I do about that. No. Uh, it's all about the Younger Dryas Impact Theory. Younger Dryas Impact Theory is like 12,800 years ago, uh, Earth all was right. pelted. Mm -hmm. And the, most likely what you're looking at with a lot of these ancient structures, uh, especially the ones that they've dated, they were confounding ones that they've dated that are 12,000 plus years old, which is when we're supposed to be hunter gatherers. Mm. It doesn't make any sense. And mm -hmm. that most likely, the Younger Dryas Impact Theory is what happened that there was a bunch of comets collided with Earth, and it didn't just happen once, probably happened multiple times and knocked us back into the fucking Stone Age. Mm. And there's real evidence in the form of iridium and uh, nano diamonds that show impact and. 
they think that this was probably what ended a lot of these advanced civilizations that had these incredible structures and that what we what we are is the people that rebuilt we're mm. the people that rebuilt civilization but we want to think that we're the first well oh six thousand years ago in babylon maybe six thousand years ago in babylon they're rediscovering civilization mm -hmm. because be. they were barbarians for years like the, the only people that survived i mean you got to imagine if something like you know, giant chunks of rock slammed into the earth over and over again. The one that they found in Australia, they know that that was only 5,000 years ago. Mm. That one that, that slammed in and, and caused all these incredible fucking destructive waves that just washed over the landscape. Mm. I mean, that happens all the time in, the, in terms of the history of the earth. There's, sure. the, the, there's a giant one in Antarctica that they've discovered. Like we've been mm -hmm. hit over and over and over again, and that's. But we don't have to worry because NASA now knows how to push them out of orbit. Oh, for sure. We'll be safe. They're gonna push us right back we'll into be safe. us. Whoops, we fucked up, and it wasn't gonna hit us, but now it is. And then you know, <laughs> Elon's gonna go up there and mine it for uh, for lithium or iridium or whatever we need in our cell phones. Uh, you know, right? Oh yeah. Oh. Imagine the first miners we sent off to space. I mean, that's uh, what uh, Alien was about, right? Yes. They're miners. But also the Bruce Willis movie. What was that? That's Armageddon. Armageddon. That was to prevent it, though, right? No, yeah. they, they were mining, and then they had to blow it up so that right. it wouldn't crash into Earth. But Alien was about miners that were I sent out in deep sleep. I was too distracted by, uh, what's her name Sigourney again? Weaver? Holy crap. Oh, oh man. <laughs> she was fantastic. She was back then. Yeah. She's still, you know, yeah, she's still, she's pretty, still good. pretty good. Holding also, it together. Yeah, yeah. yeah in yeah. the Avatar movies. Yeah. That's the future. They're going to turn her into a giant blue lady. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> we'll no longer have the, their career. Everything, everyone will just be hot. It'll be so boring. Yeah, you're like, yeah she's hot. It's hot. Everyone's hot. No one yeah. has flaws. No one has little things that right. are weird. That 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 is truly the part of the human condition. Well, that's what aliens are all about, right? Why are they so uniform? They always have the big heads and the little bodies, and that's us. That's the future. I think that's the archetype. Mm. Well, I'm already on the way with my svelte body. <laughs> <laughs> what are those pot-bellied dudes going to do? They don't fit the cultural agenda. Right. But there's more responsibility. There's more personal responsibility in a, in a society with rules and not rulers. Yes. Because, because in today's society, you can just delegate responsibility, you know, and, and you can't do that within a merit, meritocracy. It doesn't exist. Like, like I think the the... The, the Vikings, you could even say, were almost like the last standout against world colonialization, um, e even more so than I think the Native, the Native Americans, because um, they actually tried to maintain a form of tribal society at, at scale. Beyond their beyond their borders, right? Yes. And they fought the Christians. They fought the state. Essentially, they were the last. I would almost say the last holdout. Um, and then if you actually carry that out today, you could go you go to the mountains of Afghanistan, um, and you, and you see what's going on there to today. It's anarchists that don't want the U.S. government to come in and and determine their their way of life at a at a core principle. I think that's that's what we're seeing. It's still. You know, this is Russia and Ukraine. It's it's not Russians versus Ukraines. It's the state versus the peoples, and the peoples become the collateral damage of the two states at, at, at war. Uh, no, and in fact, uh, you know, I guess the pandemic and the lockdowns really took a lot of that away from people, and mm -hmm. they've been conditioned to you know for the next phase. I mean, clearly, it's a plan of some sorts. 
Do you think it's a plan or is it a natural course of progression when it comes to people and technology that, that this is also just you could see it in all sorts of other um, ecosystems and all, other s- different kinds of life that you study? There's, there's, mm-hmm. This might be just a part of life. Uh, I think it's certainly being taken advantage of. So people are... For know, sure. But isn't yeah. that probably like a factor of the system itself? Like it's just... Yes. It's yes. just what yes. it is. Yeah. It's the, the industrial society in its future. Yeah. It is the technology that is taking us... How long have you been interested in permaculture and what led you into that world? I'm a huge pothead. So that's kind of how I got into permaculture, just being a pothead. Um, going, to, going, going to hippie events, talking to hippies, um, being kind of in that world, the counterculture world. Um, yeah, permaculture to me has just always been a no brainer. Um, as far as like how we produce our food, this is like, again, indigenous food knowledge, things like that. Everything used to be permaculture. The way ever, all of our food was gathered was permaculture. We have tailbones, Joe, you know, we're not prepared for this. Our brains that went real fast. You gotta admit it went really fast fast. with the cell phone came. And before you knew it, remember when you couldn't even cash a check from another bank? Yeah. You know, now we have, you know, we have debit cards, now we've got that. Apple Pay. In our lifetime, this yeah. is a lot of a lot of advancement. It's happened so quick. And we kind of the last ones who, who know what it was like. My, my daughter's 32, and she, you know, she remembers a lot of the analog age, and so she's still okay. Um, but anything that's grown up digital, yeah, it's a new breed, for it's sure. It's a new breed of human. Yeah. And but it's being and taken advantage of. It's, it's being def- taken advantage all, of with all propaganda. All humans are taken advantage of. Yeah, all but it's so easy. It's so easy now with the propaganda. You know, you walked in the mall. You mm-hmm. Just see what's going on. You'll see the kids in their stroller, two years old, with an iPad. Right. You know, fuck you, parents. This is not a good idea. It's really dumb. Like, like the way we would hunt our deer. You know, for example, we'd actually do a deer hunt pretty much once a year. It'd be like an annual deer hunt, and we'd preserve we'd preserve the meat otherwise. Um, and the whole community would come out and they would hunt, they would hunt it. They would basically, we would spread out across the forest in a big group and we just walk through the forest, the whole tribe. And they would basically encourage the deer into these natural corrals that we would build in the forest where they could then be harvested in, in a central, in a, like a center, center spot. And we always left the opportunities for the deer to get out, right? They weren't like fences necessarily. It was just like that became the, the route of least resistance. So that's most likely where most of the deer would go. So it was very, very efficient, the way we used to harvest our food, the way we used to grow our food, right? Like the three sisters, things like that. Like this is all permaculture concepts. It's like how do you put the least amount of effort out and how do you actually get the most return for the least amount of effort? I think that's the core principle in permaculture is is, is that like um, what you're getting in return for the for what you're exchanging as far as energy goes because a real perma uh, an effective permaculture system is better than an agriculture system and it's better than a gathering hunting system because you're you're kind of hybridizing the two of them you're letting the natural system do all of the care for you and the tending for you and then you're just coming through and, and reaping the benefits essentially but it's inevitable this is what's fun. I'd like to leave on a high note. I just don't. I don't think there's any way of avoiding this integration between people and technology. Uh, I gave you my answer earlier. That's yeah. the only Jesus. Yeah. That's right. Help, help me, Jesus. Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Not, you might be right. If we well, might it would be the be, only way out for the last of us biologics. Yeah, we might be the last biologics because we'll love each other and we'll have understanding for each other. Yeah, they won't even have emotions. They'll give up on emotions. No. So, uh, emotions just make you cry, bro. 
You don't want to cry. Be happy all the time. Be happy all the time. If if you could just like never be depressed and be constantly in a state of like elevated serotonin and dopamine, would you take it? Yeah, I mean, I've been reading uh, a lot of things on pre-colonial uh, times. I've been reading uh, specifically right recently, 1491. And one of the things that amazed me is there were literally laneways cleared from where the buffalo were in the central United States into yep. the southeast and northeast where buffalo were driven. The so pound makers, trade, The pound makers. <laughs> right? But that required trade and cooperation between multiple tribes because you don't just, like, roll in and do that unless you have some level of cooperation. And then the, the animals that actually were on the east coast, they could never get up to, not really the east coast, but the north and southeastern regions, they could never get up to the levels of population that they would have had in the Great Plains. It just isn't the same ecosystem. So they were harvested, you know, in moderate numbers so that they could be maintained prior to them being wiped out. Yeah, the, wood, the wood buffalo are actually a different subspecies entirely because of their their difference in, in, um, in area and in, in region. It's funny you bring up the buffalo pounds out west. That's actually the avatar I've adopted online. Um, chief mm-hmm. Poundmaker, he's a, he's a Cree chief. He actually fought the Canadian government. Um, and, and to have the to maintain and continue the rights to have buffalo pounds, um, and to be able to have our traditional harvesting rights, because don't forget that the reason why there's no buffalo on the plains is because the governments decided that it was more beneficial to starve the natives out than it was to have that natural resource. No, would you want to stay organic? That I would want. The, I would be organic. That's I would gonna be definitely, definitely be organic. In five years. That's going to be the big question. Five years? Yeah. Wow, think, that's that's a pretty short time. Frame. I think in five years, someone's going to come up with something. Someone's going to come up with something. I mean, they're going to be able to interact. Maybe it'll just something you wear. Maybe you don't even have to fucking put it inside your head yet. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that, that we can go all kinds of crazy stuff like refuting overkill hypothesis and whatnot. But I want I want to keep moving on the subject that we planned because I mean we're just in sync here on this. Um, Want a little bit though on ancestral health because right? I know that came up a lot in the interview that I listened to that you were on where I found you. What does that term mean to you? Yeah, I think really it comes down to the core principle that the natural state of the human organism is health and healthy, and we've been basically tricked into thinking that it's not, that we're basically at a default state of disease, and we need all these interventions to prevent disease. Just something that uses a frequency it's, that affects the way yeah. you think. Basically, soma in uh, uh, a brave new world. If you read yes. that, it's soma. Yes. That's exactly what. I mean, yeah. Will people go for that? Absolutely. But right now, we as humans, the organic humans, have a responsibility to call this shit out and say, "Hey, hold on a second. This is where it will go with your kid if you treat it like this and, yeah. you, and you give it this 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 upbringing." So you know sports, all kinds of stuff you can do with your kid that cannot involve technology. It had kick a ball, anything. Yeah. Do anything. Ride a horse. I don't know. Do some shit. We're the last of the Mohicans out of Curry. Go, Everybody else go hunt some deer with a bow. <laughs> Everybody else is gonna be con- completely connected. In within fifty years there'll be no one left. Everyone's gonna be a computer. Um and it's actually the opposite way, I think, where our natural state is 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 whole and um, we have these interventions that come and dis- disrupt our, our natural biological imperatives. And then you have a mismatch where you have an organism that's in a, um, an environment that doesn't match its biology. 
that's what the domesticated human is. So when you see the state of domesticated humans, you see chronic disease is very rampant. And the mortality curve is very shallow, which means that we kind of start withering away in our midlife. We don't actually live full vital lives until our, our, the end of, end of life, right? Which is the opposite, which is true in, in wild people. They, they say, oh, well, hunter-gatherers only live to be 20, 25 years old, but that's not true at all. It's bullshit. It's total bullshit. That's the, the mean age was brought down because of, of infant mortality specifically, um, as right. well as trauma, things like that that would take you out. Again, back to hybridization, there's a, there's, a, there's a way to move forward as a species where we combine the benefits of modern technology. No one's advocating for the Stone Age. Um, but we also honor the biological imperative that we have as a species, and we live our life in accordance to those, that, that, you know, those, those, those rituals and those, those, those sort of um, tenets that, that, that create a whole... Um, organism. So I think ancestral health is not just like the type of meat you eat or whether you're a carnivore or a whatever, or any of those sort of like modern terms. I think it's more to do with just recognizing that the natural state of human is healthy. And if all we, if the only thing we can do, and, and again, about getting the most reward back for the least amount of effort, hunter-gatherers spend most of their day kicking it. They don't work very hard at all. <laughs> um, and, and that's because they they understand how to, how to, basically get the most out of their environment for the least amount of effort the same goes with human health like going and killing yourself in the gym and, and doing all these things to me um has diminishing returns if you look at athletes for example athletes tend to burn out quickly things like that because i don't think that that's necessarily peak human performance even warriors of old they're only going to fight war once a year they're not necessarily out there killing themselves every single day they may train for war but they're not going to you know, put their body under that stress every single day. So I actually don't even really work out. I just spend a lot of time out walking barefoot in nature. I'll carry heavy things or I'll do this or I'll do that. And I've actually realized that my my body responds way better to just mimicking ancestral patterns than it does to going in the gym and, and, and grinding out a specific routine. See their potentials that they saw in corn or they saw in these other plants. So there's just no funding for it. The research money dries right up um, and Azola sits on a shelf filipino farmers use it for for three decades and um now if you see there's new renewed research into it but again it goes back to these highly technological gate kept solutions behind renewable energy etc 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 they do recognize it as oh this plant's probably the universal feedstock for biofuel there's this there's that and the other thing but there's not real there's no real push for the use of it because they haven't figured out how we're going to gatekeep this plant yet, how we're going to put this plant inside of our ESG narrative and we're going to have our compliance certificates and this, that, and the other thing. They haven't figured out how they're going to do all that yet, so they haven't pushed Azola yet. But if you if you are fixated on carbon emissions and you want to remove carbon from the atmosphere, Azola is the number one way to do it because it quite literally pushed the world into an ice age a million years ago by doing the exact same thing. You know, um, one of the things that's really amazing about this plant, and for those that are in the video, I've got a, a screen up right now, is where it is already. So somebody was asking before you even uh, came into the room, dude, like I live up in, I remember it was Michigan, Wisconsin or whatever, you know, how can I grow it? Do I have to bring it inside? Well, maybe. Um, I grow it here in Texas. We do get, believe it or not, really cold weather here. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had 
five inch thick ice on my tanks that I grow azola in, and some of them are only 11 inches deep. And how it survives under the ice, I don't know. And how long I can do that, I don't know. But the ice melted. There was a little bit of green flecks here and there. When spring came, it came back all by itself. Um, I always bring some into my indoor tanks and all as a safeguard. But if you're, if anybody can see the screen right now, we're talking well down south into South America to where we're into equivalent climates to like zone five, zone six USDA, uh, all the way up the coast of British Columbia into the okay. northeastern United States all through Europe, all through Asia, the southern half of Africa, Australia, like this plants everywhere. And for one reason or another, the powers that be, the state have not declared this thing anywhere I know of in America anyway, as an invasive species. Yeah, in Florida. Florida, it's illegal to it's illegal to grow in Florida. Well good luck with that, because the Florida climate, it's gonna do it. That's where that's where I, I was gonna go. So I get another plant that I work with, it's illegal and it's called water hyacinth. And it's an amazing plant as well. And it, when if, if I ever lose mine, I always get it from a guy in Florida where it's also illegal to grow. He just runs down the canal, pulls it out, throws it in the mail, and sends it to me. Right? Yeah, that's so, why it's illegal. It's because it's quote-unquote invasive, right? So they, yeah. they don't want it to plug up waterways, so you're not allowed to um, grow it. Like, you're not allowed to cultivate it. See, this is the problem we have. We have a native species we've called invasive, right? So uh, it's the scientific name is Azola Carolina. So you can figure out where its indigenous range is. Um, but most people, my, my bigger point is most people without any kind of special uh, permission slip from the state can work with this plant right now. They don't have to beg for it or whatever. Some of the places I order plants from, they're like, oh, you're from Texas. We can't ship to you. We're a licensed nursery. I've never had that problem with the Zola. And uh, the other thing about it is it actually seems to me to be way more. Some people say duckweed is the, the fastest reproducing plant, but I grow both of them. I love both of them. Duckweed can't keep up with the reproduction rates of Azola at the right times of year where the temperature is kind of in its sweet spot. And it's a much larger plant and it fixes nitrogen. Um, so we can kind of like, let's pick this thing apart and start out with the different uses for it. Like you mentioned in the Philippines, it's still a very big part of their agriculture. And it's a plant that is basically a, a nitrogen fixing fern so it can pull night like most plants can't get nitrogen out of the atmosphere. It's their primary nutrient they grow on. And this is kind of frustrating when you think about it, because it's it's something we put so much effort into providing the plants and it's the most abundant thing in our atmosphere. But Azola can fix that nitrogen and it can use other biomass as its other nutrient and it can produce as much nitrogen as you could want. And I literally just handfuls of it, put it on my, my plants for fertilizer. And what I've noticed, and I think this is the really exciting part, the more you harvest it, the more you get. Like it actually does slow down if you let it completely fill up uh, whatever you're cultivating it in. But if you take no, no more than about 60% a shot, it reproduces itself very rapidly and you can get more for whatever use you want. It's magical. It's, it's actual magic. It's, it's wild because it, it, what I say it is, it's a BTU multiplier. So if you have animal manure, animal manure has a certain amount of BTUs. If you have food waste, it has a certain amount of BTUs. Now you take that and you add it to an aerated water system and you grow a Zola on that water system. And if you can, like you said, harvest it at the right frequency to keep the growth rate growing, you can then take that original amount of BTUs and then over an amount of time, potentially 20 times it because Azola will grow in sterile water, right? But it won't grow very well. 
But if you add it to nutrient water, where it's going to take some of the some of its biomass from the water itself, the nutrients in the water, Azola, they've done the numbers on this. It's growing 95% of its biomass from fixated nitrogen, which means that that's 20 times multiplier. It's only taking 5% of its biomass from the available nutrients in that whatever you gave it originally. So I, I think it's going to potential the potential for for energy and and animal feed and and just having it as a core um feed supply for whatever operation you're running whether you're you have a citadel you have a ranch or you have a for-profit cattle farm you know a dairy farm whatever it is i think that this this plant could be plugged into all these agricultural operations and i believe that there's a modular solution that can actually bring this to the northern climates and the cold climates as well and using bitcoin miner heat um to to keep water warm things like that using the gasification process using geothermal energy to to build buildings like earthship style buildings that that are efficient that don't need a lot of energy to stay warm things like that i think that the the future of um renewable energy is actually bioenergy based and not just azola because azola can be fed to other plants like hemp um, if you have a lot of wood on your property, you can be using wood for this process. Um, but bioenergy is the key to unlocking energy independence, much more than solar, much more than oil, much more than any other other form of energy. Um, because it, you, the, the state can tell you you can't pull oil out of the ground. The state can tell you you can't pull coal out of the ground, but they can't tell you that you can't burn your lawn grass. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's all these, these these things that it just makes it harder to control and then if you have surplus of energy, then you have a surplus of economic freedom and everything is downstream from energy. If you would like to donate to the Easy Peasy Podcast, please go to easypeasygardens.com slash donate. Thanks for listening.